Church, um, so super glad. We hope you take a seat, um, sit down. My name's Colby, and I serve as uh, the teaching elder here and one of the pastors. Um, previous to this job here, I taught at a secular university, and I was also uh, a college minister. We had a few hundred college students that we would disciple uh, fall, spring semester, and then during the breaks, during Christmas break, We'd mobilize about 7,500 students domestically in the United States to do things like disaster relief or to do missions or to go share the gospel in New Orleans or California with those heathens. And then uh, during the summers, we would mobilize for like two to three months and take college students with us um, to start strategic partnerships using college students to share the gospel and to plant churches. And so there was about a 10-year stretch that nearly every summer... My wife and I, me and our kids at the time, which we had less at that time, would go to different countries with college students and just meet needs and serve people, share the gospel, and see what the Lord wouldn't do with it. And um, as we lead into this, it reminded me of a story of we were working in a very large uh, country in East Asia. I'll let you guess which one it is. It has labs. Very famous. And we went there and began to start there, and um, we took a team with us, um, doing all kinds of different outreach things. We had a student that lived there for two to three years and actually planted a church with an unreached people group there. And while we were there, we got access into a ton of like high school, college student age students in this Asian country. The thing was, we had a unique open door at that time Because the government of China looked at America at the time and said, we want our students to have the morality of evangelical Christian students, but not believe in God. Because what was happening in Asia at that time, and is still happening today, is that there tends to be a moral drift among students there in a direction that has abandoned the tradition of the culture that came before. And they don't know what to do with the crisis of young people just kind of going off in left field. And so they actually opened a door for us as evangelicals to come in and do morality camps, basically church camp, but we weren't supposed to share the gospel, like wink, wink. And so we came in, and it was awesome. I mean, just thousands of students. We partnered with um, Koreans. And I'm going to tell you right now, Korean believers are like unbelievable. I've, I've worked with Korean believers in the Middle East, in, in all parts of Asia. They are some gospel sharing, praying, serving, amazing brothers and sisters. And a large part of what is happening throughout the continent of Asia being reached with the gospel is because like South Korea is the most Christian nation in the world per capita. And they're just, they're doing it. Um, and they're not asking America for, for, for permission. And so we, we met with these. We blended an American and Korean team and began to work with these students. And so we basically did church camp games. Like you would tangle knots. You ever done the game where like you have everybody get in a huddle and you reach across hands and then you have to untangle everybody. You might know what I'm talking about. Or you got like a rope and you, you do limbo. Who can do it? We just like the, the cheesiest church camp games of all time. And these students are just eating it up, loving it. And we use this as just fun times and obstacles and challenges to talk about spiritual things and to share the gospel with them. And we did one church camp game that went just horribly wrong. 
like the worst. Uh, so we would stack up. Do you know this game? We would stack up something really tall, like a table, and we would put a student on it and blindfold them. And then we would tell them to fall and we would catch them. Who knows this game? The trust fall game. And so what you're trying to teach the person is, is though you don't know this thing, like you need to learn to have faith and to fall and to, and to trust the other people will catch you. This is a great teaching illustration about community and about trusting God in prayer and all these kind of things. The problem was, is somewhere lost in the translation was which direction they were to fall. And so they just like a bowling pin. And like all of us are like trying to like snatch like out of midair, like catch this person. Because they got up there were like, trust us, we're going to catch you. Just fall. And we didn't say like we're all standing in this direction and they're just going this direction. And so we're like trying to, in saving lives over in Asia, just catching people from games that we created. And I think that's really uh, like exactly what's happening in this text. Because a lot of us are leaning with our lives in a direction one way or the other. And the invitation of Jesus is not to just randomly nosedive your life in any direction and trust anything, but it's actually listening to his voice and falling full on in the direction of Jesus. Believing that he will catch us. And I think a lot of us at different points of our lives, and even here today, are falling in a direction and we have absolutely no idea if we're going to land. And the beauty of what Jesus invites us to today is that he doesn't tell us to arbitrarily choose. He actually invites us, he says, fall into my arms. Like I'll catch you. He d- he's going to give us the direction that we failed to give in Asia of what direction are you to nosedive your life all in that, all in that direction. Jesus is going to teach us to pray. And so, uh, before we get into the text, let's just ask God for his help, if you would. Let's assume a posture prayer. Um, you can't rightly listen, and I can't rightly teach on our own power. Let's go to God and ask him to do the heavy lifting. Dear Heavenly Father, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, in heaven your word is perfectly known, understood, heard, rejoiced over, and celebrated. And so, God, would you come here and be the pastor, be the shepherd, be the teacher, and teach your people to pray. Teach your people to know your word, to understand it, to grasp it. God, would your voice come and call your sheep to follow you, that we might fall into your loving arms, knowing that you'll catch us before we hit the concrete. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters whose hearts here are hardened with unforgiveness, people that have walked in this room with bitterness, with baggage. God, would you, um, even now, Come and begin to snatch that up. Unclog that. So that they might hear your word. Repent of their sin. 
believe and be healed. God, would you come and do a saving work here through your word? Father, we come confessing our weakness, but you are strong. And so come and make the gospel clear and give us hope, we pray in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. Mark chapter 11, if you've got a Bible, uh, flip over to it. In our church, if you're j- jumping in with us, we go verse by verse through the whole Bible. We believe it's all God's word. It's all important. And we try to teach it at the frequency which God has laid it out for us to be taught. And so we've been going through the gospel of Mark, I don't know, for like 100 years. And we're now at the end of, in chapter 11. And we are beginning what is called the triumphal entry. Chapter 11 is this entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. We talked about the significance of this week, that this is Passover week in the Bible. And this has all kinds of historical baggage. It was a week where it was obligatory for all of the Jews, all over the world, to come back into Jerusalem. And a lot of us think that they're coming in and it's the population of Bayfield. Josephus says there's 260,000 lambs in 40 AD. And if you do the math for 10 families, there's about 2 to 3 million people in Jerusalem at the time of this week. We as Christians talk about this week as the Passion Week. It has, in the scripture, a disproportionate amount of treatment. We talked about this previously, but I want you to to get this framework in mind as we enter into it. What I mean by that is nearly half of the Gospel of John is dedicated to this week. Where Jesus is going to enter into Jerusalem, die on the cross from your sins, be raised from the dead... And ascend to the right hand of the Father and give the commission to the disciples. Nearly half of John, two-fifths of Matthew, three-fifths of Mark, and a third of Luke is dedicated to this week. If Jesus' 3.5 years of earthly ministry was labeled in chapters, there's 85 chapters of that 3.5 years of earthly ministry in the Gospels. Of that 85 chapters, 29 of them are dedicated to this week. And what we've said is, it gets the full treatment. By volume alone, the gospel writers are saying, pay attention. All right, Zoom in here. Get a hold of this. Uh, If it was you taking your car to an auto shop, this is the 32-point inspection. Right? They're giving it every... They're checking the... Make sure your caps are still on your tires or whatever. I don't know what 32 things they check on a car. It's probably unnecessary. They're giving it the full investigation. And we said that every move that Jesus is doing here is coordinated by an expectation that comes from the left side of the book in that Old Testament. And so Jesus is moving into this. The last week that we talked about, and you can get this teaching online, had to do with a fig tree and the temple. Right? And we discussed the two interplay of those. Jesus is rolling into the city. He sees a fig tree that's all leaves. The leaves would have been an indicator that what preceded the leaves would have been there. These little nubs that were edible. It's the chips and salsa of the fig tree. It's not full fig fruit, which would come in the fall, but it's a spring fruit. It's a staging area for future fruit. There's an unbelievable parallel to how the Old Testament temple is this staging area. He comes to the leaves, which would have came after that nub-type snack fruit, And he sees the leaf, he rolls up to it, and because there is no fruit but all leaves, he curses the tree. It's the only destructive miracle in all of the Gospel of Mark. 
he curses the tree, and the Bible says that the disciples heard it. We read it just earlier. He intended for the disciples to see his interaction with this fig tree. I showed you pictures of fig trees. One, I thought they were bushes. Clearly not, all right? They can get 20 foot high by 20 foot wide. He curses this tree, and then he kind of moves on, and it's a weird story. Then he goes to the temple, does his thing at the temple. Then after the temple account, we revisit the fig tree at the beginning of this account, and Peter says that the fig, he says, Jesus, look, the fig tree that you curse has withered and died from its roots. And if you've been in the Gospel of Mark, you understand that John Mark has done this repetitively. We call it a Markin sandwich. He will take a subject that is interconnected together, he will introduce it on one side, put the, the main point in the middle of a different story, and then sandwich it on the end. He frames it so you zoom into the middle. The fig tree, which is also the national symbol of Israel, is not the point. The temple is the point. He is, in cursing the fig tree, he is cursing the temple. And within a generation, within 40 years, a biblical generation, the temple will be destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. So, and that kind of got us into this question of, why Jesus tripping over what's happening in the temple? What is causing Jesus to get so upset about the temple? And I kind of highlighted a couple things that the text is going to give us. One is, is that he overthrew the money changers. That the priest understood people coming from all over the world had different currencies. So they basically like a video game um, alley place that you can go and buy video games. They minted their own coins. So you had to trade your Roman coins for these specific temple coins that they charged an exorbitant airport type exchange rate, right? Y'all remember us talking about that? And so it was a way that God never intended for this thing to be all about money. It's a way that they made it all about money. And so this exchange rate thing was a racket. It was a mafia style Ponzi scheme. And, and here's the thing, you needed to buy salt, you needed to buy doves. If you didn't bring a lamb, you had to buy a lamb, and you could only purchase it in their video game currency. It's really weird. Then, the other thing that we talked about was that there was this court attached to the temple. And it was 500 yards, about 350 yards. It was like 35 acres large, which is unbelievably large court, Right? And this court was for the Gentiles. That people that say, you were working in Rome, and you were one of God's people, and you want to invite a friend. Hey, come find out what my faith is all about. Come find out what my God is all about. And you bring him to Jerusalem during Passover. This is the place where he could come close to the temple, see what is being conducted there. He might, or she might, pray and, and know this God. And that God might answer that. So there's this court of Gentiles that they were to come to. And Jesus has to drive out those that were selling there. They basically turned it into an ag building. How many stalls? How many shops? It's the New York Stock Exchange and people elbowing people and pushing. It was meant to be a place of prayer. But Jesus says that you have made it into a den of robbers. Which is a quote from Jeremiah 7 verse 11. That this is the place where people from all over the world are meant to pray. 
and you've turned it into a circus. It's the prayer room in the church turned into a storage room. See, the Jews coming out of the Mount of Olives could cut through the court of Gentiles and into the city. They basically were using it as a thoroughfare and a shortcut. And Jesus turns full Brian Erlacher and starts driving people out. That doesn't count for some of you. Dick Buckus? Right? Like, Dick Buckus? Is that, okay, that hits? Just making sure. I'm a Ray Lewis guy, but I know I don't want to get into talking about murder and stuff, all right? So, so Jesus puts him on skates and he drives him out. And we just talked about this, is that for a lot of us, this is just not our picture of Jesus. Jesus uses force. Jesus is not limp-wristed. He is not weak. He's holy. A lot of us have a problem with this because we think the pinnacle of Christianity is that you be nice. Niceness is not one of the fruit of the Spirit. Holiness is a fruit of the Spirit. Along with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Are y'all tracking? Jesus is not concerned about culturally being nice and pleasantries. Otherwise, he never clears the temple. His zeal, which is a fulfillment of the Psalms about the Messiah, zeal consumes him because he is on fire for God. And he will not let this prayer place be turned into a circus. And so his holiness demands that he defends his father. Uh, John Calvin has a great quote. Um, He says, "When, when a master is attacked, the dog will bark at whoever attacks their master and maybe even bite them. And he says, and if someone attacks the glory of God, how much worse am I if I stay silent? So, so Jesus steps up and speaks. Now this got us into a conversation, Ty, if you want to bring up the first slides. This got us into a conversation about what is the temple. So I want to go back there. I want to grab this thread because I think if you don't understand the role of the temple, you won't understand why Jesus today is the very next thing is about prayer. It seems just random. Like he could have talked about baptism. He could have talked about communion. He could have talked about, you know, your marriage. But instead, after this whole cursing of the temple thing, he turns and begins to talk about faith and prayer. And that is not accidental. So let's remind ourselves from the Old Testament what role particularly did the temple play for the Gentiles. Go to the first slide. When they came to this court of the Gentiles, it was an invitation for them to pray. Right? Okay, so um, this is the key that Jesus actually quotes in the passage in Isaiah 56, 7. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them, a joy, make them joyful in my house of prayer. But prayer for you isn't a joy like ever. There, there's something uh, wrong with your cardio there, right? Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called... A house of prayer for all peoples. Some of y'all got red in your beard, you Irish people. That's where you at right there in that verse. Some of you that are Native American here, you are some of the all peoples. Like some of you come from South This is the all. The Gentiles that are in this room are in this verse in the Old Testament. God has intentionality that his house would be a house of prayer for all nations. 
Gentiles were absolutely present and intended for in the Old Testament. And so what's happening in the temple right now? Turning it into a den of robbers is you have clogged up your evangelism with a pursuit of money. You are meant to share the gospel through the temple, but instead you've cluttered it up and you've clogged it up with money. You got faith in the bank and money in your heart. And for them, selling these lambs, selling these things, and making an exorbitant profit, because remember, we talked about this as well. If you had to walk your lamb all the way from Vallecito, that's an accomplishment. Imagine walking it to here from Rome. You know what I mean? Like they living up in France and they got to walk their lamb. People had to come from all over the world. So what they did is they sold lambs, by the way, that were born in Bethlehem, that they would bring in at the same time that the triumphal entry started for Jesus, and they would sell these lambs at ten times the cost. Otherwise, they're charging these Disney prices, and they would sell them at the court of the Gentiles. So if I'm a Gentile, and I'm looking at what your religion is all about, am I not thinking that this is really just about money? I know that's never been accused of the church. And let's just pause here for a second. One of the things for for our members here in church, this is one of the reasons why we use the word generous a lot. We want you to give generously. You know, if the youth are going to go do a mission trip, like, hey, some of y'all got fat wallets. Send youth to go do that. We've got families that have needs in our community. We say give generously. We, uh, there's people that serve in technology to put our services online, uh, you know, right now our, our sermons are on the radio and like Saturday mornings and things like that. That all costs money to do. And we're not coming this saying, somebody visiting here, we want you to pay for that. What we say is we want Christians here that are committed to the gospel to give generously so that our church can give away things freely. It's not free. It's free to them because somebody else paid for it. Does that make sense? Because the last thing we want to do is make our church all about just money. Like it's it's... Even in the elders, we've had conversations about we really need a benevolence offering because we give away tens of thousands of dollars to hurting people in our community that need bills paid or just hit hard times or medical bills and other things. But we, it, I've, probably among all the elders, I'm super sensitive. I don't want to take like two offerings in our service. But we want our people to be able to give so that we can take that money and give it away to serve people. Does that make sense? We want to make it free to other people so that when people come into our church, they understand these people are generous so that they can give things away for free. Amen? Does that make, that's exciting for me to be a part of. But for them, it was the opposite. It looked like, an, it looked like a Ponzi scheme or something. Like it got, it, it got too oriented around money and not about the truth and not about God and not about prayer. So this is the first verse. Now look at the next one. Unbelievably compelling. Second Chronicles is going to say almost the same exact thing as First Kings that I mentioned briefly last week. Listen to this verse. This is awesome. This is uh, Solomon dedicating the temple. Intentionality in God creating the temple was evangelism for the Gentiles. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not your people Israel comes from a far country for the sake of your great name, it's God's glory that's on the line here. And your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. And I talked about this. This is a picture of Jesus. The outstretched arm of God who saved us from our sin. And when he comes and prays toward 
Do you see that word toward? Directionality. Toward this house. Hear from heaven your dwelling place and do according to all that the foreigner calls to you. In order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel. And that they may know that this, this house that I have built is called by your name. Solomon is, in, is co-signing on the prayers of foreigners to be answered by God such that they would be converted and saved. And know his glory is like the real deal. Isn't that awesome? And it all begins with praying toward this structure. Go to the next verse. Almost the exact same thing in 1 Kings. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your namesake. For, verse 42. Now, evangelism team, listen to this. For they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. How are they going to hear about it? If somebody doesn't go and tell them. That's a whole other thing. This is Romans. How would they hear the gospel unless somebody preached the gospel? How are they going to preach the gospel unless they go? How beautiful are the feet of those that bring the good news. And when he comes, so he's going to hear about it. Be compelled by the witnessing of others. When he comes and prays again toward this house. Hear from heaven your dwelling place and do according to all which the foreigner calls to you. In order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel. That they may know that this is the house that I have built is called by your name. So let me give you a picture. All right. So think about this. I am a Gentile that lives in Assyria. Let's just call Nineveh. And you'll just guess how I heard the gospel. Okay, so I'm there and a prophet had come and shared the greatness of God with me rather reluctantly. There was fish involved. And I hear and respond and believe, right, enough to say, I'm going to seek this God. I'm going to pursue him. Now, I would argue God in his sovereignty is already at work in me. And I'm beginning to, to pursue this God. And I begin to, based off of the word of God and the witness of others, I begin to pray. Isn't it interesting that one of the first things that they're inviting somebody that they're, they're witnessing to, it, to do is to pray? Do we often think of that as a part of our strategy of leading others to Christ? Interesting. If I, if I pray, and I'm not just praying anywhere. Do y'all remember the book of Daniel? When he was busted for illegally praying, do you remember which direction he was praying? Towards the temple. Why? Because the temple, just like for him and just like for me, was a mediator between God and man. What, what do you mean mediator? It had an outer court, an inner court, and a holy of holies. Yom Kippur, there was a sacrifice that happened there, right? And in that sacrifice, sin was atoned for. The holy of holies was where the glory, the, the kavod of God, the glory and weightiness God dwelled, it was the manifested presence of God on earth. It was a portal between heaven and earth where we access the presence of God through a high priest. Right? Think of all of these things that lead up to it. I am going towards this living, physical witness of the manifested presence of God on the earth. And I'm praying towards that thing. 
that is giving me access to God. The New Testament is going to, this is unbelievable. Jesus is going to come, and when he sees the temple, he says, destroy this temple, speaking of his body, and in three days I will raise it up. As the old physical temple is destroyed, the sacrifice of God, the high priesthood of God, the manifested presence of God, where is that at now? It's in Jesus. The temple, the intermediary between us and God. There is one mediator, the scripture says, between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. So let me say this. When we pray in Jesus' name, we, that's, just, that's not just a tagline at the end. What are we doing? We're doing exactly what they're doing. We're praying towards Jesus because through him we have access to the Father. He is the door. That's another word for saying portal. That grants us access to the glory of God, the presence of God. I mean, this anticipated what Jesus is. Do you see that? So, okay, so all of that. What has the temple become in our text? If not a monument to the complete opposite. It's a monument to unbelief. It's a shrine to infidelity. This temple was meant to be about prayer. And it was meant to be about faith. And it's neither. It's all foliage, no fruit. It's not doing its job. And so Jesus is going to curse it from its roots. Better to remove it than to keep it around confusing people. The fig tree was a living illustration of dead faith that is withered and cursed from its roots. So now, look at our passage that we're going to address today. And ask, what is Jesus doing? He's saying, have faith in God. When you pray, move mountains and, you know, don't doubt in your heart. And what, what is the story of the temple about? The story of the temple that we just left is about hindered prayer. Right? And if the temple is hindering prayer, then here's what Jesus is trying to do for you today. He's trying to disciple you in the lost art of praying. Something that in your life might have got mucked up and messed up and, and you don't even know how you learn to pray. Like if you're me and when I came in, I, you know, I, I had experience in the church with my grandparents, but I didn't really grow up in the church. When I started following the Lord after my freshman year of college, I came in the church. And a lot of times I learned to pray by just hearing other people stand up and pray. Because at the end of service, somebody would say, hey, deacon so-and-so, stand up and close our service in prayer. And however that guy's praying, I'm just assuming that's the right way to do it, Right? Who else, you know, like, who else learned how to pray by just ear hustling on what other people were saying? There used to be this great Baptist quote called, lead God and direct us. Y'all ever prayed, lead God and direct us? Like, it was like the, we don't have liturgy in the Baptist church, but if we did, lead God and direct us would have been right in the middle. Which is weird because the word lead God and it's all the same word. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. But I heard that and I, I started praying that, right? Which is one of the reasons uh, I was talking to Tyler about house church, about how we 
try to get people to study God's word in our house churches, but then we try to pray the word at the end. And there's a challenge here. We're trying to disciple people in our church to learn to pray from the word of God. Study the Bible so that you might mine out truths that you could pray into your lives and our lives and then into our families. Does that make sense? Where do you disciple people to pray from? So Jesus is coming here and he's discipling them about the lost art of prayer. Now, I don't know if you read this passage and anything that you ask, if you believe you receive, you get it. And so I know that there's an opportunity to abuse this, but I I think that the Bible, I know this is going to be radical. I believe that the Bible is the absolute best interpreter of the Bible. Like God as the author should be the first person we check before um, an online preacher or a commentary or anywhere else. The Bible is the best interpreter of the Bible. So I want to frame in a conversation about prayer and, and, and kind of go from there. The first one that I think is important for framing in this conversation is Matthew 7 verse 11. And it may be up on the screen. It is a, it is a verse where Jesus is talking about asking your heavenly father for things. And he says, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more your heavenly father, your good father, gives good things to those that ask. Then he goes on in James 4, 3, it talks about you can't just ask with any kind of motive. James 4, 3 says that if you're going to ask and have any kind of effective prayer life, you have to ask with the right motives. And one of the reasons why people don't, ask, don't receive what they ask for is because they ask wrongly to spend it on themselves. And many of us, our prayer lives are not God-centered. They are self-centered. And James 4.3 frames this conversation about prayer with additional information that helps us know that if our motives are wrong, we can expect nothing. 1 John 5.14 goes on to talk about praying according to God's will which we know God's will from God's word. That if you are praying for something that is in direct contradiction to God's word, you know that it's in contradiction to his will, and you can't expect to receive anything for that. And let me just say this. For instance, if you are talking to God, and you are praying for somebody else's spouse to become your spouse, you are praying against God's will because you're praying against his word. I know that's crazy in our church culture. We are to pray according with right motives to a good father who wants to give us good things according to his word and his will. The context, though, here is faith. Look at it. And as they passed by in the morning, verse 20, they saw the fig tree withered away from its roots. And Peter remembered, which is a small miracle in itself. And he said to them, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. And Jesus answered them. So it's like Peter sees this destructive miracle. He's like, Jesus, teach me this Harry Potter death curse thing that you just did, right? And he's like, Jesus answered a weird, it's like, have faith in God. Faith is in view here. Truly, verse 23, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. You should let that hit you. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Whenever you stand praying, now this is also curious, forgive. If you have anything against anyone so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. 
Jesus comes in and says, this is not just about praying, but this is about praying in faith. Now, I know me, me and Bill have had this conversation, and I think a lot of people have heard silly things about faith and having enough faith. And I would just say, well, if I pray for something and don't get it, is it because I don't have quantity enough faith? And I will argue, till my dying day, that's the absolute wrong question. Right? It's just the, it's just the wrong... I didn't, did I not get what I prayed for because I didn't have enough quantity faith? You might have got an answer, and the answer might have been no. Right? Um, I heard uh, Austin... A uh, disciple and his, one of his kids, he probably don't even remember this, saying when we pray, God either gives us a yes, no, or not yet. See, we're praying, and we only want a yes. Sometimes he says no. The other thing, too, about the question about, is it because I didn't have enough faith that I didn't get healed, or enough faith that this didn't work out this way? Is it, is it about enough? I think it completely misses how the Bible talks about this. Do you realize how often the Bible talks about little faith as a positive thing? Peter is walking on water. He's outside the boat. Jesus calls him, begins to walk on the water, sees the wind and the waves, begins to sink, begins to drown, and he cries out, Jesus, save me. Jesus responds to that calling out by grabbing Peter, lifting him up, and saving him. And Jesus describes Peter as having, O ye of little faith, not no faith, Little faith. You know how little it is? Little enough to call on Jesus when you're drowning. But it's still little, right? But it also saved him. Got him back in the boat. Right? Instead of Davy Jones' locker. Let me go to another story. Y'all remember when we talked about in Mark chapter 9, the dad who had the son that was demon-possessed. And the demon would like throw him in the fire. He'd have these seizures. Like the demon was trying to suicide the kid, right? Y'all remember that story? Jesus was off. He was there at the time. The disciples... The guy brought the kid to the disciples, and the disciples could not cast out the demon. Y'all remember this story. Jesus rolls up on the scene, and it's an indictment because the church can't do what Jesus does. And Jesus starts to dialogue with this dad, but he looks at the disciples, and he says, You faithless generation. He indicts the disciples in this regard of having Zero faith. You couldn't do it because faithless. That's not little faith. That's zero faith. You faithless generation. Couldn't do anything because zero faith. Then he turns to the dad. And he starts dialoguing about the dad. And the dad says, if you can do anything, Jesus, do it. And Jesus is almost like, that's funny. If. That's good. That's hilarious. If. If I can do anything. And he says, this, remember we talked about this, all things are possible to him who believes. That's Jesus before this father with a boy. All things are possible to him who believes. And the father responded in a way that you've heard this before. I believe, help my unbelief. So let me ask you this question. I believe, he has faith. Is it like perfect faith? How, how, much does, how much quantity does he have? Doesn't say. Just says he believes and help me to believe more, Jesus. I don't know how many times I've prayed that. You? 
And in response to his faith, which is, by the way, stark contrast to the disciples' zero faith. He delivers the boy. Why? Because Jesus is always loving to highlight faith. Even the kind of faith, you want to talk about quantity? The size of a mustard seed. So when we say, and we get into this silly conversation about, do I have enough faith? You're already on the wrong track. How about we have any faith and see if God don't do exceedingly and abundantly more than we ask or imagine? But that's where this conversation has come. I believe, and if you have faith and you believe that you receive it, your, your, your prayers are powerful. And, and listen, let's be clear. Prayer is powerful because Jesus is powerful. Prayer in itself is not powerful. Prayer is an extension cord. And that's not powerful unless your mama's whipping you with it. Right? Like, it's the extension cord. What is powerful is when you plug it into the wall, and that wall is connected to a nuclear power plant somewhere. Do you understand? The power plant got the juice. Prayer is the extension cord that is going to connect it to your lamp and to your need. Jesus, in this passage, is inviting us to access that power. This makes all the sense in the world. Because at the end of this Passion Week, He is ascending to the right hand of the Father. And He's not going to be accessible visibly, like reach out and touch him the way the disciples have known him for three and a half years. This sets the tone for this whole teaching. The temple is cursed. I'm going to the right hand of the Father to be unseen by physical eyes, so I'm going to train you to access me and my power through prayer. So Christian, if you can't Pray. Let me just be honest. There's very little you can actually do for the kingdom. Because everything you're going to do, you're going to do on your own power. Not his. And that just all the time goes bad for the church. You're going to fumble some things if all that you do for the kingdom of God, you do on your own power. And so if you don't know how to pray... That's, that's, a, that's a hot mess waiting to happen. But here's the encouragement from this passage. Is it not Jesus telling us that just like he has power to put to death the fig tree and the broken sinful temple system, he has power to put to death sin in your life. The kind of sin that kills your fruit. The kind of sin that clogs the temple of your heart with greed the kind of sin that kills evangelism to Gentiles, the kind of sin that harbors unforgiveness. He's got that kind of power that you can access through prayer. The kind of power that, look, if go back to the text, moves mountains. Moves mountains. Now, let's get into this. Nobody that I read theologically believes that Jesus is talking about a literal physical mountain. Except for the possibility of a construction project that has to do with one of the Herods. 
But nobody is in view saying that when Jesus is talking about say to this mountain, be cast in the sea, that he's actually looking at a physical mountain and that that should be the pinnacle of your prayer life. One, Jesus is almost entirely against vanity magic tricks that are self-glorifying that have nothing to do with God's glory in view. He won't do that himself and it would be rather curious that he'd invite his disciples to do it. So virtually nobody believes this is a physical mountain. But in the scriptures, church, this is powerful. Listen to me and, and zone in right here. Mountains in Zechariah 4-7 is a symbol of difficulty. God knows if nobody else gets this in all of the United States, Colorado does. It, right? And we could go further that the metaphor in Isaiah 40 verse 4, Isaiah 49-11, and Isaiah 54-10 show that moving mountains in Jewish literature is equivalent to doing the impossible. So there's an Old Testament theme that Jesus is picking up on mountains. Now, we get this, right? Because have you tried to build a house here in Colorado and had to consider how steep a grade you could put that baby on, right? And just slide right off of there. Mountains are hard to travel around. That's why we got the million-dollar highway that is rather, I, I just say, expensive, right? It's hard to transverse them. They're a symbol of you got to go around them. Like if you drive from here to Denver, I don't remember where that notch is, but there's a notch in the mountain where somebody got real, had a lot of fun with TNT and they just blew up like half a mountain so they could keep the road rather straight. You know what I'm talking about? Like it's just difficult to build roads through the mountains. This is why people from Oklahoma, where I'm from, they always ask me how far I am from Denver. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And I describe how long it takes to Denver but for their minds, they're like, why does it take you? Because as the crow flies, it's not that far. And I'm always like, well, there's this major geological formation that def- divides us from the pagans in Denver. Right? It's called the Rockies. And it takes a minute to get through that dude. Like, mountains are an obstacle. They're difficult. You can't build. It's hard to drill into them for water. Right? So, the... Th- The Hebrews who also lived in the mountains understood how challenging mountains can be. In the Babylonian Talmud, which is uh, a part of the oral teaching that happened between the time of Babylon and up even after the time of Jesus, there was this idea that developed that a really good rabbi or teacher, rabbi's Hebrew for teacher, was able to rooter the mountain. Which you may not know that word rooter, unless you needed your pipe. My pipe's destroyed this week, and I had my downstairs flooded, so we got rotor rooter Clears out stuff. It says that a really good rabbi was a rooter of the mountains. They could uproot the mountains and make them plain. So it's like this idea. It's like you've got a complicated Bible question. It's like... Um, what, what do you believe about the only unforgivable sin? We've addressed that in the series of Mark. What do you believe about the Trinity? How do I deal with the Trinity? What do you do with the thief on the cross? People come all the time to Bible teachers with theological questions. And they understood in the Babylonian Talmud that a rabbi who could problem solve and unpack this mess was a mover of mountains. He could take something that was really complicated and and. You remember phone cords when your phone used to be attached to a wall and the cable would get all tied together? Okay, never mind. Um, 
You ever had earbuds that you, they don't have cables either anymore, right? And you'd spend like 30 minutes not working out just trying to get the cable straight. Like if, if, if a rabbi, a teacher could untangle the mess, they were called a mover of mountains. They come to the mess, they come to the chaos with wisdom, problem solving, and ability to make it plain. It's like, uh, you know that all the problems you did in math at the top of the sheet, like you'd have a book and you'd have to do all these like 20 problems at the top, the odds of the evens, all led down to the, there's a problem down at the bottom where I'm, Johnny's driving a car 60 miles an hour and he throws 17 oranges out the window and how many, you know, like someone catches them at this, velo- it's like impossible. Like it, you hated the, the paragraph problem at the bottom. Like really, all of the math at the top is meant to get you to be able to solve this real life problem. And what they saw was like, they kind of, great teachers were people that could make the mountains plain. Uh, This expression about mountains is sort of like what we say with people who take a small problem and make it massive. Right? They just blow up everything. We say, don't, you know, don't turn a molehill into a mountain. See, we use mountains the same way. Don't take something small and make it something huge and difficult. Don't make it more difficult than what it is. Mountains are an illustration of difficulty. Now, look at what he says to do. Man, this is powerful. Look at what he says to do with the mountains. That if you believe, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea. I mean, he could have said, into Texas, you know, whatever. Because Texans believe it could hold all of Africa or whatever. It's so large. Be taken up and thrown into the sea. And does not doubt in his heart and believes what will come past, it will be done for him. To the sea. What? There's, a, there's a comparison here. Mountains. <laughs> Mountains are big. But the oceans are bigger. The sea swallows up their size. Matter of fact, if you had the mountain, of, you can fit Mount Everest in the Mariana Trench. They disappear into something more massive. It's not that mountains are small. They're not small. They're big. Unless they're in Oklahoma. We call hills mountains. But that's a different problem. It's not that they're not big. It's just that they're not bigger than where you cast them. They're not bigger than where you cast them. They're not bigger than where you cast them. Your sin is not bigger than His grace. Your problem is not bigger than His wisdom. He's inviting you and teaching you in prayer To bring your stuff to the problem-solving rabbi who moves mountains. Listen, this is what good would it be for us to take all the physical mountains of Colorado, cast them into the ocean, you know, into California over there, or the Gulf of Mexico, and make Colorado as flat as Kansas, but your sin remains. What kind of prayer would we be great at What kind of glory would we give God if we made Colorado 
by our prayers as flat as Kansas, but our sin is not cast into the ocean of His grace. See, what, what, kind, what would it matter if a bunch of rocks went into a bunch of water, but your problem that you're facing this week isn't handled by the miracle-working power of God? Our rabbi is saying, hurl your junk at me. It's not that it's not big, it's just that I'm bigger. Um, I just got, I want to brag on the Lord. So um, we have a partnership here with Guatemala. We, we go down to Guatemala and there's a people that live near a trash heap that's there. We have a partner there that is doing maternity stuff to help save babies and help moms and um, feeding people every day and providing sustainable housing. And they've got a church that they're trying to put together and, and they're preaching to people and it's just awesome. And our church was really excited about spring break and going to Guatemala. And there were some travel restrictions. It didn't end up working out. Uh, but a lot of the people, we just continued to pray that God would work in that situation and open a door and do something there. And so we were praying for Guatemala and continued to do so. I went and preached at a place in, some of you guys know the stories. I went and preached at a place in St. Louis and did an event over there. While I was there, a high school student from Guatemala came up to me and was like, hey, I'm Guatemalan. It was you know, I was adopted. My dad is an elder at this church. He works in Guatemala. So we exchanged numbers. We FaceTime. I came back to Colorado. We FaceTime that week. A big part of what we've been trying to do is get the church down there going. And we love our partner, Oscar, down there. But he needs Bible training. He needs help. He needs reinforcements. He needs help kind of figuring out how do I lead a church? How do I pastor? How do I get all this? So it was really a bummer for us not to be able to go down there and spend a week just doing outreach, yeah, but just investing in him and investing in some of his leaders in that church doing discipleship. So I get a hold of this elder. You won't believe this. Random place in St. Louis. He is, he was raised in Guatemala. His parents were missionaries there for 30 years. He planted two churches there himself, then kind of served helping pastors. He came to the United States for school and some different stuff, started a business. It was very successful. Now he uses a huge amount of his resources to train pastors in Guatemala. I'm like, no way. Absolutely way. Yahweh. We get on saying, we're eye to eye about preaching and theology and these things. So we start to talk about where are you located at. He's literally in the same town next to the trash heap. He could have been doing his ministry anywhere in the whole country of Guatemala. And he's within 20 minutes. Of our boy Oscar. So I said, bro, i got to share your number. Call Oscar. Tell Oscar about this. I said, dude, this guy's going to be there Friday. He's going down there Friday to do a training. He says, I'll bring Oscar in. I was like, our church would love to help support that. I'm sure we can get money to help with this. No, no, no. He's like, I spend my time fundraising from businesses so that I can pay, like, take guys for a year and train them for free down in Guatemala. I'd love to meet Oscar. He's one of our kind of guys. They send me a text on Saturday of Oscar in his first training class to be a pastor. We couldn't go as a team here, but we were praying, and God moved a mountain. Do you hear what I'm saying? Oscar wept, because he feels so alone, and now he's got this whole network of people loving on him. God answers prayer, y'all. I, I almost hate flying, okay? I hate getting on planes, and I hate flying. 
because it, it, it's not that I hate the flight itself. I'm not scared of dying in a flight. It's much more dangerous every time I drive to Durango. I believe that with all my heart. Okay? It's not that I'm afraid. It's that you never know who you're going to sit next to. Okay? But I know that God has prearranged so many conversations to happen on top of flights. And so I, I'm just there, and I start praying. Uh, you know, we were flying. Uh, our family was taking a vacay. We're flying, and I sat down, and I promise you, I sat down. The, I have all right. I have pretty wide shoulders, okay? The two widest shoulders in the whole airplane was me and the guy that's next to me. I sat the whole flight, turned catty corner towards him, which is awkward, all right? He was kind of up, like 60s years old, thing there. And I, I want to be honest, I can almost throw my earbuds in, not talk to anybody, but I have been praying, God, if you want me to have a conversation with Seth, just open the door, because you know I'm not great at sharing the gospel. Like, just help me out, I'll, I'll be faithful to share what I can. And then I get in there, and God forces me to turn towards the guy the whole flight. I'm just looking at him. And he's sitting there, and it wasn't like, I don't know how long we were in the plane, and the guy just starts chatting me up. And we talk about Utah, we talk about Colorado and the stuff, and as soon as Utah came in, I kind of had an idea of what I was dealing with. And so we began to, and for hours, me and him walked through why Mormonism doesn't have the gospel. Because it doesn't have the biblical Jesus. And people in the row ahead of us, behind us, it was respectful, it was kind, it was courteous. My kids behind us, the whole, hours to sit and walk through this thing and got him to the point of like, this, it, this is what's hanging over. If you don't know the biblical Jesus, not the one of Joseph Smith where he's like the brother of Satan and there's all kinds, bro, you're in a cult. Like I just got to the point. It's like you're in a cult and it doesn't teach historic Orthodox Christianity and if you know this Jesus, it'll give you life like you've never had in keeping all the rules of Mormonism. And he's like, I just, I've been raising it my whole life. I just don't think I could give up my traditions. And that's where the conversation ended. God arranged that two hours of us walking through that. Right? I could have sat next to anybody. Small-shouldered children. But instead, we're face-to-face. One more. I... I just had these three recently, and I've tried to write them down because I'm terrible about journaling. I, on my way out to St. Louis, I was praying the same thing because I met the Mormon guy with the broad shoulders. So I was like, all right, God, like if you got somebody on this plane, like let me know. I'm, I'm ready. Like, like I, I, I'm encouraged. I know you'll do it. Get on the plane. Fly the whole way there. there. The person was like 17 masked up. I was like, we're not talking. I know this is not happening. And so we get, I get off the plane, and I was like, all right, well, I prayed. I was available. Fine, God, today's not the day. You know, you didn't want me to, you know, like, um, get kicked off this flight or whatever. So, fine, I go, I get my bag, I walk out. I'm waiting for the car to show up. And by the way, it was ten times colder in St. Louis than it was here in Colorado. I don't know what's going on with that, all right? And so I get off the plane, and I'm standing outside. I love St. Louis. It's super hood. It's got, like ghetto parts of it where you get stabbed. It's like south side Chicago. You know what I'm talking about? Like, it's the Detroit uh, of further south. It's Detroit south, okay? I'm there. A car, car in front of me pulls off. I'm waiting for my car. I look down, and there's an iPhone. And I was like, yes, Lord. I'm just joking. <laughs> One, it didn't get hit, so I like, I look around, and I go and pick it up, which feels weird, because I'm like, 
if somebody sees me do this and they think I'm stealing their phone or something, I get it, and somebody calls me on this phone. Some sort of like magic trip that app, Apple does. If you lose your phone, you can call your own. And the guy gets me, and I'm like, hey, I'm here. I found your phone. It was underneath a car that drove off. It's crazy. And he's, I, he's like, can you meet me? And I was in my heart, I, I promise you, this is not me. I would never want to meet this person. All right? In my heart, God's like, absolutely do this. And I'm like, yeah, man, I'm in. Where can I meet you? Gas station over here. Sounds, sounds shady. Let's do it. My buddy gets there, and he's like, I was like, hey, man, he's picking me up to go to this event. And he says, I was like, dude, before we go anywhere, I've got to meet this guy to give him his phone. I kind of explained to him. He's like, he kind of gives me the googly eyes. Like, oh, man, you should probably just drop that off at the, plane, at the police station. He's like, nah, man, we're going to meet this guy. Pull up in this gas station, and I mean, this thing, the car he pulls up in, it got sweet rims. Let me just put that out there. We're in a Honda Civic, all right? Get out, and my dude doesn't even get out of the car, okay? The dude that's with me does not get out of the car, have this iPhone. And I didn't know how to start the conversation with this guy, but I just said, hey, bro, do you know Jesus? And that tended to be a really good conversation starter because I have his phone. And if he wants the phone, he's going to have to answer this one question. I don't want to say it's a hostage negotiation, but it was kind of close. And so I gra- he's like, dude, you will not believe this, but God has been all week like wrecking me. And I just, st- like, I just started following the Lord. And we had this whole conversation. His name's Lionel. You can pray for him. And I gave him the phone, and I said, I just believe with all of my heart, I was praying for God to give me somebody just to encourage or to share the gospel with or share Jesus with, and then I found your phone outside the airport, and now we're here at this shady gas station, and I just think this is God arranged. I think God arranged for this, and so by this time, my buddy got out of the car because he didn't know what we were doing. He didn't know if I was getting stabbed or whatever, and so me and him right there, I said, bro, can we pray for you? In that parking lot, we lay hands on Lionel, and that dude was just like, this is, this is the best part of my day. Let me ask you this. Do you believe what this text says? That if you pray, God will move mountains. That if you pray in faith, that God will begin to activate and to move things that will be moved no other way. The Bible says you have not because you ask not. But when you start asking and you start praying, things start moving in ways they wouldn't otherwise. Do you believe that? Do you believe that no matter what the mountain is, that the sea of his grace is bigger? See, Jesus is inviting us to lift up our eyes. I used to live in Europe, and I would study not at Brenda's like I do now, but at cathedrals. Church cathedrals are open all the time. You can just go into them in Europe. Like, the doors are unlocked. So I go in there and study. And what I love about them is their roof, the ceiling is like unbelievably high. And when you walk in the environment, it compels you to lift up your eyes and believe. Like it lifts your eyes up. Like literally, the space makes you want to turn your eyes upward. Like they built it that way as a physical thing that relates to a spiritual thing in your prayer life. I love cathedrals for that. I love how it's built into it. It lifts your eyes. Jesus in this passage, listen church, he's discipling us as Christians to lift our eyes. He's discipling us to lift up our eyes. And here's the thing. He ends with this thing about unforgiveness. He says, if you don't forgive, 
it is going to stifle your prayer life. The number one serial killer of spiritual vitality that I have known in the church in my time of ministry has been unforgiveness. That somebody can't forgive themselves, something done to them, something done by others, they can't forgive somebody else, and all of a sudden they start coming to church, but they don't get nothing out of it. You heard that? I mean, sure, I may be trash and getting worse as a preacher. That may be fact, all right? I can live with that. But it also may be, you may be drawing in unforgiveness in your heart and backing it up with, oh, I'm, I forgave them, but I'm not forgetting. That actually sounds like just a cute way of saying, I'm keeping a grudge, just in case I need it. Jesus is going to end this conversation in prayer of like, oh yeah, don't roadblock your own prayer life with unforgiveness. By the way, what happened at the temple? Sacrifices were made so that forgiveness could happen at the temple. Everything about what we just talked about with the temple, about prayer and substituting, atoning for sin and forgiveness, is exactly what he's teaching you in your prayer life. Access to God through prayer and forgiveness. And forgiveness. I'd say this is maybe nothing's going to kill the lifting of your eyes up to God like being fixated on the sins of others that have been done to you down here. And so Jesus is going to invite us to let that go. To surrender that mountain as well into the sea of his grace. Here's where I want to... Let me add this thing and then we'll end. Uh, I heard one psychiatrist counselor say that nine out of ten of his patients that comes to him are dealing with unforgiveness. Something that they've done that has brought them shame or something that someone else has done to them. Nine out of ten. And he says what most people that come into his counseling session need, they don't need more drugs. They need a priest. A high priest. And I would argue one, only one good one is Jesus. Let me end here and then we're going to go into communion. Church, the thing about harboring unforgiveness, guilt, shame, is not that it just cuts us off from our prayer life, which it absolutely does, and cuts us off to our power source of grace to us. Not grace to us, but power to us and power through us in our prayer life. It just doesn't do that. But unforgiveness makes what we've done or what others have done to us more important than what Jesus has done. The problem with unforgiveness, and I want to end here with the gospel. The problem with unforgiveness is it makes what we've done or what others have done to us more important than what Jesus did on the cross. than what Jesus did on the cross. And the fact of the matter is, that's just a lie. The problem with unforgiveness is, it makes what we have done, or what others have done to us, more important, more powerful, more central, than what Jesus did for us on the cross. When he died for your sin, and he buried it in the grave, and he rose, giving you new life. Can I pray for you? And then we're going to invite time of communion.
Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would come and invigorate us with your power in such a way that uh, my brothers and sisters are here and even the foreigners and the friends that have joined us might pray towards the Lord Jesus that you would hear from heaven and answer in such an undeniable way that you would change their hearts, their minds, and their lives. God, would you gift faith to individuals in this house who will seek it from you in simplicity? God, would you teach us to pray that we might know you and we might make you known? We pray that in Jesus' name, everyone said. Amen. Come, brother. Please send time to communion.